This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Neil Kramer, an English writer, speaker, and philosopher in the fields of consciousness, metaphysics, shamanism, and ancient mystical disciplines. He is someone who can connect the dots, the epitome of a free thinker. Neil Kramer will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our shows, become a member. You'll receive instant access to all our shows. And remember, Veritas survives under voluntary subscriptions only. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe and take Veritas with you. And next week, our special guest is Sean David Morton. I'm sure you know who he is, so I hope you don't miss it. And I only have a few USB drives containing Season 1. I will start focusing on Season 2 in the coming weeks once the shipment comes in. By the way, and speaking of the Season 2 USB drive, 
I'm still gathering the bonus material I will include, but let me give you an advance. I found some footage of the Apollo missions. Apparently someone ordered it from the NASA store. After the person received it, the NASA clerk was asked by his or her superiors to recall it because he or she was not supposed to release it or to sell it. Well, the person did not return it and I have it to share it with you on the new USB drive. In addition, I have some handwritten letters, original handwritten letters from Dr. Paul Benowitz. Google that name and you'll find out who he is. I will let you know when it's ready to sell. In the meantime, you can buy season one. Go to the Veritas store for more information. I want to thank a lot of you for your feedback regarding my appearance on the History Channel's Brad Meltzer's Decoded, which aired yesterday. I'm told you can watch the full episodes on the History Channel website at history.com, but I think it'll make its way to YouTube very soon. I believe they changed the title from Ancient Prophecies to simply 2012. If you have cable, I'm sure it will be on your on-demand functionality, and if you don't own a TV, visit our forum for more information. I had a great time doing this segment, and we'll have Professor Buddy Levy, one of the cast members of the show, with me on a future Veritas episode to discuss some of his research. In the next few days, I will be recording a Veritas special report segment, just like the ones we did last year for the BP oil spill. This time, we'll be talking about the dead birds, fish, and now crickets. Apparently, Dr. Brooks Agnew, a friend and veteran of this show, has connected some dots and he would like to share it with you. So stay tuned for this important report. And let me tell you what happened last weekend. On Saturday morning, I was heading to a lecture with Dr. Nancy Clark, which by the way, I was able to film and it's now available on Veritas TV. The title, Inner and Outer Time, Navigating the Future. Well, I was driving about 10.30 in the morning and encountered unusual traffic. All of a sudden, my phone rings, and it was my wife, almost hysterical. She and her daughter were at a restaurant when she started seeing lots of police cars, ambulances, and even helicopters flying over and landing right across the street. She found out that a shooting had taken place. Yes, she was across the street from where the Tucson tragedy happened. When I heard about it, and since I had my camera equipment, I wanted to reach that area to report, but it was impossible. They cordoned the entire block for more than five hours. One of my managers told me that her best friend was there before the tragedy started. She decided not to enter the Safeway grocery store because there were too many people in front of the building. So she went next door to the Walgreens drugstore. Not even five minutes later, she heard gunfire. Immediately after, a man opens the door and comes in jumping, limping. He was shot in the foot. She peeked outside and almost broke down when she saw the carnage on the pavement. That's when she called her best friend, one of my managers. The pharmacist ran out and came back minutes later, drenched in blood, trying to save lives. As you know, six people were killed and 14 were wounded. From what this witness could gather from others who saw the events, she says Congresswoman Giffords was shot from the back and was the first person to be shot 
The gunman then continued shooting indiscriminately. At least one woman was shot three times in the legs. She survived. So many bullets and one shooter only. She also heard the shooter had glassy eyes. As you know, among the dead, there was a nine-year-old little girl, Christina Green, who was born on September 11th, 2001. The witness stated no one in the entire strip mall was allowed to leave. She had to wait inside the Walgreens for five hours. She was questioned, her vehicle tagged, and was let go after 3 p.m. The same happened with the hundreds of people who were shopping that day. Remember, I drove past the area, and when I returned many hours later, the entire parking lot was still full with the same vehicles. Another interesting fact is that Congresswoman Giffords was born on the 8th, represents District 8, and was shot on the 8th. There is more information out there sensationalizing this event. As someone very close to this event, I can only tell you what I've been able to gather. I tried finding more witnesses, but have not been able to do so yet. There's information out there saying that this looks just like the Columbine or Virginia Tech shootings. It certainly looks like it, but I'm not going to engage in speculation. What I will tell you is that the media and the political apparatus are using this incident to the fullest extent. How? They're pushing more legislation to ban weapons. Although it seems that the perpetrator of this heinous crime was under my control or needed mental help, the fact is that a knife can be used to cut an apple or to kill, to be used as a weapon. Even a box cutter is considered a weapon these days. When they ban the weapons, the population no longer has recourse and citizens become slaves. Look at our neighbor to the south. Gun ownership is illegal, but that doesn't prevent the criminals from owning them. The same applies to many of your countries in Europe, Australia, and others. It's usually an event like this one that becomes the catalyst and triggers new legislation and the Hegelian dialectic makes its way one more time. The problem? Guns in the wrong hands. Reaction? People become outraged and clamor for gun control. Solution? New legislation makes its way and guns are banned. Slowly, they use these incidents to illustrate a point. Jared Loeffner, the shooter, we come to find out did not watch TV, was apolitical, and did not listen to talk radio. So why all of this attribution? Because someone wants more control, as Ram Emanuel said once, never let a serious crisis go to waste. It's preposterous to see this tragedy being used to promote an agenda. And the last I heard, a former best friend of the killer said Loeffner was affected by having watched the movie Sidegeist, which many of you have watched. And I was even trying to get Peter Joseph, its producer, on the show. Do you see the signs? They equal this crime to someone who listened to too much conspiracy shows. Can you read between the lines? Are we next? I'll keep you posted as this situation continues to develop. But I also want to take a few seconds of silence to remember those who were lost that day. Thank you. And as I was driving to the lecture, I received a telephone call from Dr. Carol Rosen. Many of you may know who she is. 
from the Disclosure Project, and also she was the assistant to Dr. Werner von Braun. Very soon, you can expect an interview with Dr. Carol Rosen. But again, the lecture film is now available on Veritas TV. It's a great video to start the new year on the right track. And if you need to get in touch with me, just go to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the contact button and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to spend an evening with a respected free thinker and researcher who from an early age escaped from the matrix and learned how to connect the dots. Why do we encounter people all the time who want to enlighten us with their beliefs but don't want to listen to what we have to say or counter their beliefs? Is a belief the equivalent of carrying a cross? Why do the masses depend so much on the government mainstream media propaganda machine as opposed to finding out the truth for themselves? Neil Kramer is coming up next with answers to these and many more questions. If you get the truth from your television screen, stop this audio now. If you want to learn guerrilla warfare tactics to avoid the bombardment of the programming we face on a daily basis, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Most of the great music you hear right here on The Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com. Maxwell, and you're listening to Veritas. Neil Kramer is an English writer, speaker, and philosopher in the fields of consciousness, metaphysics, shamanism, and ancient mystical disciplines. Neil has spent over 20 years on a path of inner transformation and shares his discoveries and knowledge in writings, interviews, and lectures, as well as giving one-to-one teachings. He is a frequent guest on popular alternative radio and internet shows, enjoying international audiences and enthusiastic support. His work is regularly published on cutting-edge websites, news portals, and popular media networks. Neil has spoken at international conferences on the nature of human consciousness, as well as touring the USA and Canada, speaking in cities such as Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. His talks have been broadcast on Sky TV in the UK. His acclaimed website, The Cleaver, and his audiobook, The Audio Cleaver, attract large, discerning audiences. Neil gives interviews, teachings, and live presentations on many fascinating subjects, including paths to authentic being, sovereign empowerment, transcending systems of control, and dimensional shifting. You can read more of Neil Kramer's work by visiting his blog at thecleaver.blogspot.com. And I am so privileged to introduce to you for the first time on Veritas, 
and something tells me it won't be the last. Directly from New York, I would like to introduce Neil Kramer. Hello, Neil. How are you? Hello, Mel. I'm very well, thank you. And um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. It's my pleasure. And as we, I was telling you offline, Neil, I must say that it was thanks to our one of our listeners who referred me to you. I'm new to your work, and I'm perplexed to the fact I haven't been exposed to your research. It's amazing, and it's going to help us in the process of gnosis, of knowing, which is the primordial objective of this show. But first, I want to know when, how, and who motivated you to start the breakthrough process that transformed you to the research you are today. Well, for me, it really began with uh, a basic natural impulse that was an observation that I think we all have, which is that the world around me didn't seem to contain the answers that I felt um, I was looking for. So this kind of happens to different people at different ages, sometimes in our teens or our 30s or our 50s or whatever. And regardless of when that happens, it's always kind of quite a revelatory moment. And you realize, or you get a sense, shall we say, initially, the realization perhaps comes later, you get a sense that the world is perhaps more mysterious and magical than um, you've been led to believe. And so for me, it began with a study of philosophy, of psychology, and of what you might call kind of scholarly texts. And this then moved in later times to Uh, spiritual texts, uh, the obvious kind of Christian and um, monotheistic texts, which were touched on in school and so on, but not really. Uh, So I looked deeper into those and then to other texts like um, Zen and Buddhism, particularly uh, Zoroastrianism, Mithraism, looked at the mystery school uh, data that was available at the time. And a lot of this occurred pre-internet. So we're going back a little bit here for perhaps some of the younger listeners in the audience. So much of this was books. So it was the old-fashioned linear way of trawling through libraries, index cards, books on tables and so on. So it was the old-fashioned way to some extent. And then obviously as the internet perhaps took hold in the mid to late 90s, um, that information gathering exercise Uh, really gathers momentum and you can collate a lot of diverse sources then. So um, that really gave access to all kinds of different information along the way. And in parallel to this, if you like, acquisitional process of reading and studying and so on, was very quickly for me and very fortunately, if I can use that word, a realization that really it isn't just about study, it's about experience as well, personal experience. So as soon as was practicable, um, I started to actually get out and um, bring the the knowledge into experience and kind of <clears throat> I realized that the, the transmutation point of those two is what brings wisdom in the end. And so a lot of the shamanic work, I mean, that's a bit of a buzzword nowadays, but you know, it's really something I see as a, a natural impulse across all continents and indigenous peoples and so on, not necessarily um, defined just by like the Amazonian or the Siberian shamanic traditions, but something particularly in my work, and this has been echoed in other alternative researchers as well, 
that shamanic impulse seems to derive um, largely from Europe and from Gaul and from Albion and Britain and England as it is now and seemed to some extent to spread outwards from there. So um, that's quite a, a shift in the official timeline, the official linear narrative of, you know, typically this enlightened, uh, more holistic worldview we imagine comes from east to west, but I, I've not found that in my work, and I've seen this corroborated in other circumstances as well and in other, um, in other works. But that's, t- to some degree, not relevant because it, it all depends what time frame you're looking at and where that knowledge moved around from. And certainly with the, the Romanist influence, um, the Empire of Rome in Britain 2,000 years ago and the sort of uh, colonization of some areas of Britain and certainly the influence of the Romans, um, as well as the resource uh, grabbing and the sequestering of uh, land information and cultural traditions. What also the Romans did was uh, a very thorough deletion, really, of um, Britain uh, as an island, Britain's um, indigenous shamanic traditions, which were mainly reflected in what we now call the Druids, which were a a shamanic class of peoples, as we we might say now, um, who were very prominent, very eminent, and very respected in the regions of um, North, Eastern Europe, and Britain, the Isles of Britain, um, and the land of Albion, uh, England as it is now. And they have really just been erased from history. So um, officially, there is not a single piece of written Druidic work in existence. There isn't a single thing. So most Druidic studies are based on real esoteric um, alternative research and real sort of penetrating inference from other areas. If you actually look at, as I say, the official uh, version of uh, Druidism and its influences, there isn't much to say, there isn't much there. And the few researchers who've done that work, you can really write it down in, you know, 50 pages and that's it. That's all there is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, this is rather a, a diversionary way of answering the original question but yes there is certainly uh, an evolution i think in everybody's personal path from knowledge and experience and wisdom and spirituality and then along the way of course um something that is appealing to a lot of people you also realize that this this real magical tradition this real story of mystery of mankind is um, suppressed largely and at first it seemed that it was through ignorance but as I looked into it deeper and indeed as probably all of your listeners already know it's not through ignorance the suppression it's actually intended and it's it's a very carefully managed strategy so that is what a lot of people would refer to as the new world order or the illuminati or the elites or whatever and there certainly seems to be very credible evidence to show that um, there is a class of um, illuminists, and I use that word in, the, in a, a broad sense, there's just a group of people who stratify knowledge uh, very vigorously, i.e. they um, only give access to that information through very well-articulated initiatory stages, and they protect that, and it's, it's reflected not only in information, but in bloodlines, genetics, history, verbal history, metaphysics, physics, science, and all the rest of it. And that 
esoteric tradition is really what kind of gives the game away because that is the contained therein is the real history of what has been happening on earth the last few million years and what, where man comes from and all the rest of it so the whole thing is very very um is very reflective of something that we all kind of have to do to some extent which is be a bit of a sort of renaissance man that is have a skill and an ability to process information to study cultures to study spiritual traditions to study conspiracy to study um everything that touches this picture really so we can only really assemble this mosaic if you like by understanding the big picture so throughout my work i always try and emphasize as kind of uh, vigorously and profoundly as i can that if you only focus on one particular texture or one particular color in the spectrum then that specialization although you may get some acumen and some you know discernment and even some recognition in it personally doesn't really give you the wisdom and the fulfillment and the evolution that perhaps we all want, that only really comes from having a very, very big zoomed out picture of the whole thing and realizing that at root, it is such an esoteric story. It's so off the wall. It's so mysterious that, um, you know, we have to suspend a lot of belief systems in the process. We have to pause a lot of our traditions and customs and even the ones that we think are pretty safe and pretty sound Belief really is not a friend to the alternative researcher or to the spiritual adventurer. It's not entirely necessary. Um, so rather than jettison one's beliefs on this path, what I've found is a useful little metaphor is just to suspend them or to put them on pause as if it's a, a CD or whatever. Just pause them while you go into these esoteric realms. And then once you've studied them, then you can release that again and re-examine that belief system. So I always try to present information, of course, and share the wisdom that I've had the um, good fortune to come across. But all the time as well, I seed everything I do with the suggestion that this is part of a much bigger picture. It's never just about the information. It's never just about the polarity of good and evil. That's a very crude and uh, basic way of looking at it. The real story is more complex and more, more fascinating, more exhilarating than that. And in our case, we not only press the pause button, but we press the stop button and disconnect <laughs> the machine too. But it's very important what you said about the native ways. Going back to the native ways, mm -hmm. you know, many people as we grow up, they're portrayed as savages. Oh, those savages, ignorant, backward thinking savages. But there seems to be, as you said, an information renaissance right now where people gravitate to the old ways of the natives, of the indigenous people around the world, because they seem to have what it takes to live in harmony between peoples and, and with the planet. Why is it that the Western world continues to demonize them in a way and continues to hide, as you said, it's forbidden knowledge, it's uh, hidden right in our face, almost as if they're doing it to keep the control all over us so that we don't know what potential we have as human beings? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the clues in the question there, the, the basic answer to that question is that once you realize the true story of what's been occurring on this um, very special, very sacred planet of ours, this blue orb right out there in the, in, in the void in space, there's something special about Earth. 
And one of those things is that human beings, as we understand them, have this extraordinary capacity for creation and this extraordinary capacity for fabricating, for manifesting, for creating reality. And what we come to know when we study this big picture is that that is completely inherent and intrinsic to every single individual on the planet. And if your interest is to control those people, the basic con, if you like, of what I call the control system, just to neutralize the terminology there, the basic con of the control system is to reframe what it is to be a human being in a very restrictive and limiting way to say that essentially you're just a biological machine. You come here for a period of 70, 80, 90, 100 years, whatever it may be, and the real game, as far as they would like to put it, is to gain a certain level of material um, comfort during that process. And maybe if you're intelligent, dip into some of the finer aspects of music and literature and um, culture and so on. And that's it. And most of the planet, most of the 7 billion souls here buy that reality model. And so the con is, here's the reality model, here's the roadmap, and that's it. And we back it up with science, we back it up with history, we back it up with tradition, we back it up with cultural traditions. And it's very hard to argue that if your only reference point is their information itself. So that's where we see uh, the emergence of this, this kind of new set of terminology about the outer and the inner schools and the exoteric and the esoteric knowledge. And it's, it's useful to consider that even in something as, as apparently... Uh, simplistic as modern contemporary Christianity, um, that that is very much a sort of exoteric outer um, morality allegory, really. And when you um, move away from Christianity, it's very tempting to just dump it entirely. But contained within it is some incredible esoteric knowledge that as ever, doesn't belong to the Christians necessarily, but the first early Christians had, you know, an extreme... um, a focus and a stream, extreme alignment with something that was very empowering and very sacred. And as the um, the Roman Empire came across this, they stripped um, Christianity of this and just left the exoteric in the public domain. And you can see this with every, particularly the Abrahamic origin, uh, religions like um, Christianity and Judaism and Islam and so on. Um, it's never about the people who uh, worship in these ways or practice these systems of spirituality they're entitled to do whatever they wish and it's foolish for anybody to discount any system because they all contain things of value what we're talking about here is the um, sequestering and the co-opting of those systems and the stripping down of it so it's a little bit like in kind of high finance corporatism where um, you know venture capitalists will take uh, a financial Uh, asset and strip it basically for sale or strip it for uh, integration into a larger unit and that is exactly what the control system has done for millennia hijacking yeah exactly hijacking that's that's exactly what it is Uh, but they do it in a very clever way and one of the techniques they use is a kind of what i call nano history um, view of things which is that they manage our localized 
proximal history into such a tiny time frame that we get no real contextualization of what's actually been occurring. So for those who are studying conspiracy research largely, it seems that things are very, very dark at the moment, very gloomy and very um, cynical. And yet this is just really the tip of an iceberg and there are thousands of them and there, there have been millions of them and it's nothing new. It's just another seasonal change. As you say, however, what has um, modified the game board, if you like, is that the real massive proliferation of energy um, through digital media in the shape of information, in the shape of language and syntax, we now all have access to that. And anyone who's got a laptop or a computer and um, an internet connection, they can, if they wish, sit down and do studies within the space of a few months that previously would have taken many, many years and were only available to people with very luxurious resources and um, time to spare. Now we can do that ourselves. So as long as we create the time in our lives to do this, whether it's you know in the afternoons or the evenings, or we really just get out of the whole nine to five thing and dedicate ourselves to this, if we've set our lives up in that way, it's available. And that's that's quite new. That's not been the case for any sort of recorded history in the in the the mainstream historical record that's never happened before i believe it has happened since then but not in what we might consider contemporary history so within that model this is new this is entirely new and so a lot of the um the kind of psychological operations the psyops and the warfare and the strategizing now is not in the deserts of iraq it's not in the mountains of afghanistan it's in our homes, it's on the screen, it's in the informational space. And so um, one of the other skills that is a very sweet and powerful one to have is the ability to discern and to refine and to distill information for oneself. So we have to become our own scholars to some extent. And that's another theme that I present in my work that to some degree, um, a lot of what we see in the esoteric world, in the in the real world to some extent, is subjectively discerned as truth. There isn't perhaps ultimate truths in this. So we have to make that decision about what is real and what is pure and what is um, what has veracity for ourselves. No one can really tell it for us. So, un, you know, believing that somebody has the sort of magic keys, whether it's, you know, a scholar or a researcher or a spiritual teacher or a guru or whatever, is 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 the old way really nobody can give that to us because the path the the path as i call it the path of transcendence or the path of natural human conscious evolution is always a very singular one and it's unique entirely unique to all of us it's custom built for every single soul so no one has the magic keys that they can give you and say this is it this is the story this is the way because no single reality model fits everybody um and and every guru and every spiritual teacher worth the salt is aware of this they know this and if they claim otherwise and that they have the magic way and if you go to their ashram or if you go to their temple or if you go to their cult or their school that they will bring you to transcendence it's just the old typical you know way of trickery really it's it's not like that um we have to accept that every single personal conscious evolution is subjective and is um, unique to ourselves. 
So once we start to do that, although it's initially a little bit disconcerting because it's nice to be handed things and handed the map and handed the magic words or whatever, after you get over the fact that it's not like that, it's actually very empowering to realize that you kind of have everything you need to do it for yourself. And it sometimes might seem that other people are way ahead of you and indeed some people are way behind you. But it's all very relative, really. And so the only thing that matters is your own particular path of consciousness. And again, once you get over the the fact that that isn't a selfish uh, pastime, it's actually a very generous one and it's a very gracious one. Because as you become more conscious, everything that you touch around you, physically, emotionally, intellectually, um, is improved. It becomes higher definition. It becomes higher quality. It has a higher um, resolution and purity to it. And so your basic human conduct becomes better, and you just become a cooler person, in short. And so even if nothing else, it's just a better way of being than just saying, I am a Christian, or I am a Mithraist, or I am uh, an atheist, or whatever. Those, those ways, are, those collectivist terms really do not help the individual in a, a grand sense. They may be gateways to other things, but they're not destinations in themselves. So studying these traditions um, is, is a good idea, and there's nothing wrong with, as Robert Anton Wilson said, immersing yourself in these things and allowing yourself to believe them and go with them and attend these schools and traditions and practices, but then come out of it, have a reality check to yourself and say, okay, well, that's one way of looking at this thing. That's one perspective on this thing. Now let's take another one. And as, you've, as you do more and more of them, you begin to realize that ultimately the only real way of perceiving, the only real way of moving forward is to do it for yourself, is to conceive and comprehend at a very deep, personal and intimate level. It's something that isn't really transmittable, this. But there comes a realization inside that your path is your path. It's nobody else's. So it is a very personal business, this inner work, this this path of transcendence. And um, we have to be very uh, careful and very diligent on our journeys in our own lives to basically remain open-minded, but also exercise this kind of um, judiciousness in what we do to realize that nobody can tell you what is real and what is unreal except you yourself. Um, and that is what I try to distinguish myself from others in the field by constantly putting the responsibility back on the individual because once they accept it it's actually an extremely empowering thing to do you don't realize neil that you don't know me but you just described me in the past five five minutes you just described <laughs> my path and described the main goals of of this show and one of the reasons why i like neil's work is because you hardly can repeat one interview or one lecture because you have touched so many subjects. And before this interview, I wanted to ask uh, Neil what he wanted to talk about. And basically, he ordered the following highlights. And I'll read them to you so you know what we'll be discussing tonight. He said, why don't we talk about individual expressions of consciousness, personal versus collectivist narratives, spirit and emotion, media hype, and terror phantoms 
and shamanic experiences in everyday life. But you said something very interesting. The specialization that society wants us to put us in a silo. Mel, you need to do this and, and just mm-hmm. pursue a PhD in engineering or in this or in that. And ever since I was a child, I was against, absolutely against specializing on anything. And people would call me, oh, you want to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. And I would tend to differ because the more I learn from every single topic, the more I get from the amalgamation, from the mosaic, from the jigsaw puzzle that at the end of our lives, we'll realize, you know, maybe I did not finish the puzzle, but I did not live my life just with one piece. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yes, I would. Um, It's extremely important that if one is committing oneself to a sacred path, to a path of uh, knowledge and a path of wisdom, that you can't really pitch your tent in one place permanently. It doesn't work like that. And in the uh, ancient times in Britain, um, there were guilds, different guilds for different um, uh, disciplines and different Uh, focuses and different traditions and it was normal for uh, a spiritual um, student to move through the different guilds and undertake different aspects of different um, disciplines and move them forward in themselves and indeed even in Hinduism uh, particularly in uh, the the Vedic uh, scripture we find systems where the student would be expected to learn politics, to learn um, about religion, to learn about language, even to learn about um, lovemaking and to learn about art and to learn about music way before they were in any position to learn about the real inner schools of knowledge and the real inner schools of transformation. Because to some degree, and this is what is uh, again a key aspect of my work, this thing takes quite a lot of discipline. You can't just stumble into it. You can't just launch yourself and throw yourself into the middle of it. Just because the information's there and we can all look at it, it doesn't mean that we can suddenly transmute that into this special sacred wisdom overnight. It takes a little time. And that's you know, a very unfashionable thing nowadays because we expect, all of us, myself included, a certain um, rapidity in everything that we do we want things now we want quick turnaround we want you know next day delivery we want real progress seven steps to enlightenment you know it's it's very tempting to see that but again when you accept that the journey itself is the teaching there isn't a destination as such that the path itself is the teaching then you can take as much time on it as you wish and you can go on as many diversions as you wish off the freeways onto the little highways and byways and little country lanes and so on there's nothing wrong with that and indeed sometimes we feel we really have velocity in our learning and in our personal studies and we're really moving fast and we're learning a lot of stuff And then there are other times when we move very slowly and we could just be studying very subtle things. We could just be, you know, learning about botany or looking at the flowers or looking at the raptors and the hawks that fly over us and, you know, learning about them and what place they have and their symbolism in Native American culture or um, European culture. And you wonder, is, is is that really, you know, necessary? Is that really part of the path? Everything that we do, everything that we do is part of the path from the most 
mystical and transcendent things that perhaps we all have these experiences from time to time and the real high points real points of touching that self-actualization that we all long for and yet it's in the mundane things and this is what zen tries to teach um, so often it's in a lot of the mundane things that we see that actually those big epiphany moments are actually integrated into everything we do all around us and so whether we're just driving along in our cars or brushing our teeth or whatever the real skill in the path is to integrate it into everything you do and as you begin to do that as you begin to uh, retain that vigilance all along the way and not just keep it special for the weekends away at the conferences or the, the special book you read and all that special friend that you sometimes talk to but to actually put it into practice all the time that is when you begin to shift your reality and you begin to change it and you begin to see synchronicity and um, the magic kind of spiritualizes what you do and you don't have to go around and proselytize and preach and switch people on it's as i say that's that's a fool's game it's not really about that it's always about yourself um, and your own path but what happens is paradoxically as you do it you begin to naturally come into contact with other people who are also doing that very same thing and you begin to form these connections so another aspect of my work is that you really do have to work on yourself before you can get anywhere you really do have to focus on your own path before you can get anywhere but as you do that as i say these kind of um, energy um, projections um, fire out of you. They fire out of you. These bands, you know, increase and expand out of you. And it, you kind of broadcast the fact that this is what you're doing. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. As you do it intimately and personally and subjectively in your own life, you are broadcasting the fact that you're doing that 24-7 all the time. And other people who are doing that can pick up on that broadcast and it's a subtle thing, and some people know it and some people don't, but you tend to magnetize events and people and objects and experiences to you that are relative and are important to your growth. And the more attuned you become to this and the more integrated it gets in your everyday life, the greater that increases. And it, as I say, the best way to describe this in, in concise terms is it, it spiritualizes your life again and it becomes a more enjoyable adventure rather than a slog or the drudgery that you know many of us have felt or still feel in our lives. That happens when your kind of spiritual radar, you know, you, you switch it off and you keep it in a little drawer and bring it out sometimes. There's no reason why that ever has to be switched off. It can be left on all the time. And the only thing one has to learn is not to, as I say, preach about this, not to try and convert all your friends and family to the stuff that you're into. That isn't the way of the spiritual warrior. It's not a just and it's not a cool way to behave. It is a personal thing. So, yeah, it's 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 a game of many different colors, of many textures, of many resonances. And naturally, as human beings, we will demonstrate a certain integral... Um, ability and a certain natural propensity for certain things so you could say this guy can do these three or four things particularly well this woman can do these three or four things particularly well that doesn't mean that we don't be conscious of all the other things but we all naturally demonstrate particular abilities in certain areas so some people 
they may not have the words or they may not have the articulation or their eloquence to speak about in in the way that some people do but they may do it in other ways they may do it through art or they may do it through music or they may do it just through their own observations in the world so that's another aspect of this we don't have to communicate it as such we don't have to broadcast it it can be incredibly personal and you never write a thing down you never do anything it's just your own intimate thoughts but that is the path the path is what happens within yourself and it's as you start to bring that into 24 7 life that that feedback loop starts to be observable you start to discern it from just the apparently concrete external world you realize that in actuality although you may have read this you actually feel for the first time that the apparently internal and external worlds are just one entity that feeds back on itself so there is no real distinction between what's inside your head and what's outside there in the world so as um as i've said before the outer world really is very much a a, a very literal mirror of what's in you And so if there's some things that are out there that are shitty and you don't like and are difficult to deal with, then that is an opportunity presented by yourself to yourself to deal with it as an external entity. Whereas when things are sweet and when things are cool, that is, uh, again, a mirror feedback that you're on the right lines, things are things are okay. But it never gets completely smooth. As as I often remind myself, you don't really ever get the big vacation, the big foot off the gas pedal that you ever uh, you sometimes desire not while you're here while you're here this is training that's what this is this is training this is sharpening that blade of awareness all the time so if you ever wonder whether you've succeeded or whether you've achieved ultimate attainment as long as you're still here no you haven't this is still the school this is still the special place where we all um, place ourselves in, in my understanding to cultivate this this spiritual vessel and along the way there's all these incredible compelling matrices that we we see matrices should i say and there's all these incredibly glamorous constructs and narratives that we get drawn into but they are all aspects of a single system and they all achieve reality and manifestation through us so we shouldn't ever separate ourselves from what's out there and we can come to this later on the the fact that we generate this thing uh, you know solely and wholly it's our responsibility so um as i say perhaps we'll come to that later on but for now it's sufficient to say that um the path at the basic level um is your own path and no one really has the solution for you you can pick up t- tips and guides and wisdom and it is perhaps incumbent on everyone who's on the path to always have um, the sort of etiquette of sharing wisdom freely whenever we can. And if somebody asks you who is also on the path a thing, then you tell them a thing. And if they ask for your advice, then you give it to them. But to um, imagine that we are in a place to uh, dictate or to teach or to proselytize without somebody asking us is is very foolish really and is a bit of a a poor way of doing things so um it's incumbent also on this this sort of spiritual student to always maintain a degree of humility 
and modesty in what they do. And really, the only pat on the back that's ever necessary is the one that you kind of give yourself from time to time, because that's the one that really means something. Um, If you're always seeking recognition and awards and uh, kudos from your peer group, then you've just strayed off the path a bit. And we see that with one or two people in this field, but not many. Most people have realized that the ego has to be kept in check a little bit, not something to completely destroy because it's a useful thing to have, but it has to be kept in check. It's not really a captain. It's more of a sort of, um, you know, backroom staff and it has its job to do, but it's not, it's not really qualified to captain the vessel. Um, so, in our alternative field of uh, the esoteric, of the occult, of um, exopolitics, of uh, mystery traditions, whatever you want to call it, uh, we don't see a lot of that. Too, not too much. There's a few people who shall remain nameless, but not too much. <laughs> Whereas in, in the mainstream, we see it an, a hell of a lot, don't we? Most yes. people in the mainstream, the musicians, the actors, the politicians, the military people, they're all really, really kind of caught up in the narrative and lost entirely in it. So their ego, their backroom, uh, you know, boiler room guy who, who shovels the coal into the into the engine, he's also captaining the vessel, which is, which is always a bit of a recipe for disaster. So we can at least look on a, upon our own little community, if we can call it that for a moment, uh, as something that has achieved a certain level, one would hope, of modesty and of, um, you know, um, subtlety in what we do. And it's, as I tell everybody, the road to the truth it's not a destination, it's just a, a journey. But I call it the road to the truth is not evenly paved. But it's up to us to dodge those potholes every so often. But the law of attraction, people who want the truth, people who want to wake up, go to listen to people like you, visit your conferences, your lectures, listen to you on this radio. They come to me without me having to push anybody to come. They come to me voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the biggest and most frequently asked question I get all the time, and I discussed this a few months ago with Michael Tessarian. We all want to wake people up. We drive around and we see these Matrix zombie drones sleeping and just believing the subliminal tube and the media, which is the official media of those in control. Those people, when you want to wake them up, according to Michael Tessarian, you may be changing their destiny. So it may not be the right way to approach them. How does Neil Kramer wake people up, and how would you advise somebody to help wake people up around them? Neil Kramer doesn't wake anybody up. People only wake themselves up. Good. I don't, I don't advise anybody ever in any circumstances to wake anybody up. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If you go into a room and there's a little baby sleeping, because you're awake, why should you assume that you also can go over and wake the baby or wake the old man or wake the relative or wake the friend? It's Some people are meant to sleep when they're meant to sleep. So my little mantra for this is let sleepers sleep. Everybody comes to awaken in their own time. Now, if you see that purely in the time span of a single lifetime, it kind of doesn't make sense. And particularly for the people we care about, our friends and family, There is an impulse, and it's undeniable, and I have felt it too in the past. There is an impulse to say, hey, you know what? Don't worry about politics. Forget um, Kane and forget Obama, forget Cameron, forget all these 
politicians. It's all a, it's all a fallacy. It's all nonsense. You know, this is the real story. Let me share it with you. Let me share my research with you. And what do we find? We find that they will look at it if you're lucky, and then they'll drop it a little shortly afterwards, and they'll drift back into their own matrix, into their own illusion, into their own construct. And the reason is because they have not come upon their awakening by themselves. They've been shook. You've shaken them, and you've brought them around. And then just like you know the old guy who's snoozing in his chair in front of the fire, when you walk off, he just falls back asleep again because he's not woken himself. We can only wake ourselves. So the imperative is not to go and wake anybody up. Let the sleepers sleep. Our job is to cultivate our own awareness and is to formulate our own wisdom and to rediscover the old wisdom of which really that that is all there is and every discovery and creation and plagiarization is really just uncovering something that's been here for perhaps millions of years certainly thousands of years that's what our job is to do we are a kind of spiritual archaeologists and spiritual artisans in a sense and nobody really can do anything for anyone else without first being asked for it so if somebody asks you and says hey you know what I'm a little bit disenfranchised with um, Obama and he hasn't really achieved some of the things that I, I hoped he would have done what do you think about that then feel free to give them your completely unfettered um, original free th- thought on that tell them exactly what you feel about it but if somebody's watching politics and is really wrapped up in it and is going out onto the streets with placards and signs and painting themselves different colours and doing all these kind of radical political um, activities, it can be frustrating to see that in action. I remember when the the, uh, British uh, Parliament... Uh, supported the Iraq war there was kind of like um, 2 million people in the streets in in London um, protesting against the Iraq war and it it made not a jot of difference, not a tiny piece of any influential difference whatsoever, nothing nothing at all and it is frustrating that but if we give in to the temptation to say to those people, those 2 or 3 people we know that are doing that hey, you know what, what you're doing is is nonsense, it's a waste of time, then that is a self-indulgence on our part. That is weak on our part. It's it's nothing to do with us, what they do. What they do is their business. So awakening is always a personal, intimate path. It's always singular. It's always unique. That's why those who are saying we have to wake everyone up, we have to bring everyone to consciousness, we have to do this, we have to do that, are on the wrong track, really, because that in itself is an indulgence. That is very easy to do. It would be much easier for me to get on my soapbox with a big bullhorn and shout my truths at everybody and shout what I've learned at everybody else. But that is not a good way of conducting oneself and it is not a pure way of conducting oneself. And everyone who does that, deep down inside, although they may bury it with layers of psychological protection, deep down inside they know they know that they're doing the, something that is not constructive. So to answer your question, if somebody's asleep, have compassion, love them from a distance and let them sleep because they will wake up. It may not be this lifetime. It may not be while you're alive. You may not see it, but that isn't your problem. Your business, 
your focus is to focus on yourself. And that is the most constructive thing you can do because as people observe you, as your friends and family observe you growing and evolving, no words need to be exchanged. No path needs to be shared. They will sense it. They will see it. And for those special people who are on the borderline of knowing that there's something much more excellent and interesting going on on this planet, they will come to you. They will approach you. So don't assume that the secret things that you've found out are of any interest to anyone else because their path in may be completely different. It may be a philosophical path or a spiritual path or a metaphysical path or it may be an artistic path and it it may be something that you have no ability in. So they have to find it for themselves. And we go back to the group think. At least I think also in Europe and in the United States, the education system frowns upon individual thinking. We have the group think, we have the hive mentality. Uh, basically, they don't want any free thinkers, any sovereign individuals, because they become a threat. I uh, quoted one of your quotes that you include in your lectures, William Burroughs, the way to kill off a man or a nation is to cut off his dreams. We have this mentality of helplessness, hopelessness. How do we get out of that? and to become really sovereign and free-thinking individuals without having to follow the herd all the time? Well, this is a very interesting question. Um, We have a thing, particularly in England and Europe and America, we have a thing called a way of life, um, a culture. And we are led to believe from the moment we show up here to the moment usually when we check out, that that way of life is our way of life and that culture is our culture. And it's something we should protect and indeed something we should celebrate and uphold. And the fact is um, that most humans really are, you know, naturally more um, at ease with stuff that is like their stuff. So things that you see and feel and hear and taste that correspond with what is familiar to you, your cultural artifacts and resonances. And as we move on, hopefully, as we become more open and flexible, we realize that when we examine other cultures, we actually find stuff that is really interesting. And when we get um, confident enough to let go of our ties to our own stuff, our own cultural artifacts, we see that some of the other cultural things are actually pretty cool. New sights and smells and architecture and textiles and philosophies and you know new songs, new bands, whatever. And we learn slowly but surely that by observing these new things, these alien modes of expression, that they can actually be more um, interesting and more exciting and more useful than our than our own than our own stuff, and this leads to growth and this leads to authenticity. So when we ask the question, why are we reluctant to move away from our own culture and our own traditions? We have to ask the question: Who is it exactly who creates the culture? Who is it who creates our culture? Who fabricates its stuff? Who legitimizes it? who mediates its themes and icons and so on. And as I'm just writing a piece on this at the moment, actually, so it's kind of fresh in my mind, but it isn't me who's doing that. And it, it isn't you. And it isn't your friends. And it isn't my friends. The people who create the culture are the elites. 
And in the old days, it was religion. They created the culture. And when people figured that one out, then it became the state and its upper classes, its upper class administrators who created the culture. Today, the people who create our culture are the corporations. So people like Steve Jobs, Oprah Winfrey, um, Lady Gaga, Sarah Palin, Mark Zuckerberg, J.K. Rowling, they are the ones who define our cultural imperatives. And if you look at the sort of Time Magazine top 100 people, they're, they're like the, they're my bottom 100 people, essentially. And those people, although some of them are doing interesting things and certain innovations, they are completely oblivious to the fact that they are the conduits of a totally prefabricated non-human culture. And so we have to understand, as Terence McKenna once said, that culture is not your friend. It is not your ally. And what he was suggesting in saying this is what I've just said, which is culture is not actually ours at all and is not generated from us. So mass culture, as we see it now, what MP3 player you use, what shoes you wear, what car you drive, what music you listen to, certainly in the mainstream, mainstream mass culture is solely aimed at promoting this collectivist impulse. And collectivism, for anyone who's not familiar with that term, it is really um, a, a thing that seeks to enforce dependence of the individual on a collective group and the priority of those group ideologies over our individual life path. So at the basic level, you could say that this is the root of not only socialism and communism, but also fascism and totalitarianism. So you can just wipe away left-wing and right-wing politics on this. It essentially disconnects us, as you said earlier, from our sovereignty. And now at the top level, the control system is fully aware of this and they completely comprehend that there is no distinct separation of nations and ideologies and cultural imperatives and all the rest of it. To them, there is only power and no power. And one way they exercise their power over us is by compelling us to accept their culture. So if you walk through central New York City and look at what's on the, the billboards and the giant video screens, and you walk through the malls and the stores and down the street, every single cultural artifact in there does not, arise, does not um, arise, does not derive from individual humans. It derives from corporations and from think tanks. So everything that is really of value, that is of real human cultural value, is always... Um, characterized by what um, is outside of the mainstream. So there's always a degree of uniqueness and spontaneity and asymmetry to it. Something that, you know, is not really practical to fabricate or mass produce. It doesn't lend itself to reproduction and marketing and packaging and all the rest of it. And so the value of real culture is in what is distinct, what is crafted, what is handmade, what is skillful, and at root, what is a representation of the individual, not an organization. So real culture is always anti-commercial at its very heart. And so this is one of the things that basically has to be grasped before we can embrace our sovereignty, that some of the things that we thought 
were representative of our way of life and our culture never did belong to us in the first place. They were created as a control mechanism to devalue us, in fact. So we have to look to what is real, what is natural, what is human. And those things, as I say, always come from uh, the, the bottom up, essentially, not the top down. And before we take our one and only intermission, I want to let the audience know <clears throat> that when we come back, we're going to talk about duality, which is everywhere. I saw this in one of your lectures as well. Uh, a group of words, for example, in the world that we live in today, folks, diversity equals standardization. Choice equals no choice. Education equals conditioning. Defense equals war. Economy equals slavery. Terrorism equals opposition. Culture equals approved self-expression. Health equals illness. Medicine equals poison. Success equals failure. And freedom equals dependence. Isn't that true, Neil? Yes, it is. It is really the realization in a very manifest way in our world today of the kind of Orwellian double speak in that we have got used to the fact that choice equals no choice and that peace equals war and so on and so forth and it's so embedded in the cultural uh, political paradigm that we don't even see it anymore you really have to be sharp and very very vigilant to even spot that anymore so another part of this thing um, this cultural um, deconstruction is to understand that the very language itself has to be um, very carefully analyzed and very carefully deconstructed to understand that the language is kind of like um, a carrier signal for certain memes that is a, a, an idea or a thought or a, a seed concept and the language um, propagates memes in the very words that we speak so when we say things like the terrorist threat or we say the war on terrorism or we say al-Qaeda, what we're doing is we're propagating a fake, entirely fabricated falsehood that has no substance in reality whatsoever. And so perhaps we can take a closer look at these things in, in the second hour. Absolutely. Neil, how do people get in touch with your work, your, your book, etc.? Okay. Um, the main website is thecleaver.blogspot.com, which contains all my essays from the last kind of five years. Um, there is also a link on there to uh, get the audio book. If you want to listen to this stuff instead of read reams and reams of paper, that's cool. I do that myself. It's pretty good to listen to this as MP3 so you can purchase the audio book version of that. There's also uh, a transitional alchemy tour disc uh, myself and my friend and colleague KMO we did a tour of Canada and the States uh, just earlier this year um, and there's kind of 12 hours of stuff on there of different conferences and talk talks and stuff that we gave across the States um, there's also neilkramer.com which is going to be live soon that will redirect you to various places um, my book is still um, in the pipeline for, for publication And I'm currently working on a film as well that's at the same stage. So those two things have been taking up an awful lot of time, but they will hopefully uh, materialize into the, the 3D um, in, the, in the spring stroke summer. Um, but in the meantime, there's an awful lot of other stuff out there, most of which you can get to from my blog, The Cleaver. And as I tell everybody when I start the show, if you want to believe, don't listen to us. If you want to know, stay with us. I'm here with Neil Kramer. 
This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
This is Michael Tosarian, and you're listening to Veritas. Veritas.